This is The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. My guest today is our visiting critic, Conrad Black, who joins us from Toronto. Welcome. Thank you, James. It is an honor to have that position, and I'm delighted to be with you. Is America in irreversible decline? The question certainly at home as we receive word that our visiting critic was denied his visit into the United States. Conrad was the scheduled speaker for our annual Circle Lecture in New York. Just days before this event, we learned that his visa to enter the U.S. from Canada had been rejected. The southern border may be an open door, but the northern border remains bolted shut, at least as it concerns the entry of Lord Black. It was a grievous loss for us and for our readers. We look forward to seeing our colleague finally in person. Conrad Black is our 2021-22 visiting critic and the recipient of our 2020 Edmund Burke Award for Service to Culture and Society. A financier and former newspaper publisher, he at one time controlled The Telegraph and Spectator, The Chicago Sun-Times, The Jerusalem Post, and most of the large newspapers in Canada and Australia, including the National Post, which he founded. Now an essayist and author, Conrad writes four regular columns that are read by over a million readers. He is also the author of 10 books, including biographies of Franklin Roosevelt, Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, and a strategic history of the United States. So is America in irreversible decline? This is the title of Conrad's Circle Lecture, which, rather than live from New York, we have now recorded in Toronto. It is also the topic of Conrad's feature for our November 2021 issue and his 29th essay for the magazine. Conrad, your title reminds me of the opening scene in Citizen Kane, when the journalists begin to look deeper into Kane's life. They say, build the picture around the question, even if you can't answer it. The question of American decline is one that many of us are raising, even if we can't answer it. Why this question and why now? Well, I, I thank you for not taking it farther into the psychiatry of uh, William Randolph Hearst or even focusing on the, the sleigh, the rosebud and so forth. I mean, that would be, that would be a little abstruse, but... Um, countries can decline, people can decline, anything can decline. The issue here is irreversible decline. I don't think there's any doubt that the status of the United States in the world today has declined from where it was a year ago or five years ago. But, but is it irreversible? It absolutely is not. It is a question of uh, getting the right personnel into positions to make the right policies to reverse the decline. And that has happened before in the history of the United States and of every serious country. I mean, all countries fluctuate, and it is essentially a question of the quality of leadership that they have at the time. All countries do brilliantly with brilliant leaders, but no country has brilliant leaders all the time. I, look, I hate to sort of, as a non-American, leap in and what is not, in fact, a partisan note. It, it, it's a political note that has partisan implications, but I'm not a partisan. At various times, I've wished for the victory of Republicans and Democrats, but this administration has caused a decline in the status of the U.S. in the world, but it is certainly reversible. 
I hear an 11th book is on the way, this one on ancient Rome. In your essay, you discount the parallels between the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and America's own trajectory, which is a relief. But what should America learn from the history of Rome? Uh, Well, there, that, there's a lot to that. I mean, uh, the, the book, by the way, is the, the political history of the ancient world from hmm. the earliest political evidence we have to um, to the to the death of Augustus. So it, it's, it, it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you get through recounting the uh, you know the history in that period of two thousand years of the pre-Christian era of the Egyptians and the Jews and the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Greeks uh, and and the Romans. It, it's it's a lot of history and a lot of very famous people even today. Uh, as to the Romans, um, the responsibility of operating a large jurisdiction of immense influence in what was then the known world does does furnish some useful indications for any great power today, and particularly for the United States, um, you wouldn't wish to emulate Roman political institutions. Well, in some ways, they were relatively advanced. They were not politically effective after the after the Gracchi failed to make the reforms that were obviously necessary. Failed to do for I'm, I'm stretching a parallel here, but to conform to your question, what? Franklin D. Roosevelt did you know, to deal with a crisis and deal with it in a way that was somewhat radical, but retained 95% of what he took over while reforming it sufficiently to settle things down. <clears throat> when they failed to do that, and both uh, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus were murdered, you then had the era in Rome of the political general, generals who who victoriously led armies greatly in the Roman interest and and the loyalty of their soldiers was to the generals and not to Rome. It, it was obvious where that was going to go. And you had the succession of Gaius Marius, Lucius Sulla, uh, Pompey, and then Julius Caesar. And uh, it, 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 there are people who speak glibly of the United States today, reminding them of that period as the Roman Republic ended before the empire began under under uh, Julius Caesar's uh, grand nephew and adopted son, Octavian, Augustus. I, I don't see any of that. But I have to say, and I'm not an alarmist, there was just the slightest trace of it in the conduct of General Milley. I mean, one of the things that Jefferson did that has been underestimated, in my opinion, amongst the services that he rendered the country was setting up West Point, which created a non-political officer corps. And it was replicated later in the Navy. A tremendous contribution to the country and that distinguishes the United States, among other things, from the Rome, the Roman examples we've just been talking about. And for Milley to be so partisan in his treatment of the famous walk across the street to the Church of the Presidents, and in his uh, constant publicity seeking and spinning for his own benefit, um, 
I mean, there's been some of that before. General MacArthur did some of it. General Patton did some of it. But they just basically talked to the press when they were there. They were talking about newsworthy events. They were victorious generals. And they and they put out their position. What they said was uh, essentially accurate and not, I think, with any motive more sinister than to bring distinction upon themselves as generals. It's not for me to impute motives to Milley. I obviously don't know the man, and I, I, I don't know what his motives would be. But it is a bad thing, in my opinion, for a person in his position to be seeking publicity as much as he does and undercutting the commander-in-chief whom he serves. First Trump and then Biden. It's not a Trump-Biden question. It's a question that the Joint Chiefs of Staff should not be doing that. And when you have the ostensible principal serving officer in the military contradicting the commander in chief, it, 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 it can't be tolerated. I mean, I'm an admirer of General MacArthur as well as President Truman. And I think MacArthur was right militarily. And if we listened to him, we wouldn't have this North Korean problem now. As, Chang, as, as John Lai confirmed to Mr. Nixon, the Russians would not have lifted a finger to help the Chinese if what MacArthur had wished had been done. But the point is, he shouldn't have done it publicly. Even a great general like that, saying sensible things, shouldn't publicly contradict the president whose orders he is bound to take. Does Afghanistan remind you of anything in uh, Roman history? <laughs> the truth is, shooting from the hip, James, I don't recall... I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm I, 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 the closest I can think of, and it isn't an exact parallel at all, was the loss of the three legions in the Teutoburg Forest in 9 AD. In general, when, when they, you could make a case for the activity with the Parthians, where they, the Parthians defeated Crassus, and, um, and, and they defeated Mark Antony, and it took, I believe, till Trajan, till the Romans finally shut them down. But in general, the Romans never had a fiasco like that. They only entered territories that, uh, where, where they could set it up in somewhat the way we had it a few months ago, that there was a government in place. I mean, the famous or infamous King Herod was like this with the Jews. He could only govern with a, a little bit of assistance from the Romans. And the Romans knew that he was dependent on them, but they didn't have to be bothered sitting there running the place. Uh, sometimes they had a legion, one legion only in Jerusalem, sometimes not. But in general, they would enable and facilitate Herod to rule, but they didn't have to pay for it and they didn't have to get involved in it. And that was, I thought, what we were working towards, bipartisan, several administrations um, in Afghanistan, and then all of a sudden, the, the plug was pulled out of the bathtub and everything went out. Mm. So, you know, they, and if, unfortunately, I have to tell you that at least until very late on, the Romans managed that kind of operation more intelligently than the United States did on this occasion. Seems like it. You write that today there is a tremendous wave of American mm. self-loathing, which you describe as unprecedented mm. and unjustified. Where does this come from and what can be done about it? Again, you put a very important question that is so complicated in its answer that I, I, I approach the answer with great hesitation and um, caution. 
it is not really for me to say what psychologically is at the root of that response, that woke anti-American response of, of millions and millions of Americans. I mean, I, I've been following American affairs intimately for more than 60 years. I've been a homeowner in New York and in Florida for many years. I've been, I own newspapers in 30 states in the United States. I must say, I know the country well, and I certainly have studied its history. And the best I can do is say that there came a time when um, there was, there, there were particular issues that were seized by particular sections of the country, especially this militant African-American group, which coincided with a period when comfortable white liberals had reached a point of some revulsion against the American mythos, the, the notion that it was a new order of the ages, the dawn of human liberty, a uniquely virtuous country. And as I said in, in the essay you've graciously referred to, there is a kernel of truth in that. I mean, all countries, all serious countries have a mythos and there is an element of exaggeration and of self-serving, uh, self-inflation in the presentation of that mythos and the composition of it. And it is not the case that the United States was a new order of the ages. It was not the case, frankly, that American citizens had any more civil rights than British citizens living in America had had before. What they had was a resident government of their own and therefore more susceptible to their intervention. But the, the civil rights exercised by pre-revolutionary Americans were identical to those enjoyed by the British and, uh, and, and the Swiss and uh, the Dutch and some Scandinavians. And that continued to be the case after the revolution. But the real point was that since the United States was the first important country as it was set up, even the, the day it was founded as a country, it was an important country. Um, the first one not to have a defined culture of its own. I mean, the English spoke English, the French spoke French, the Dutch spoke Dutch, the Spanish spoke Spanish, and so on. And the United States was very much, thus, in, in cultural terms, the second English-speaking jurisdiction after the British at that time. It isn't now, but it was then. And, and to create the raison d'etre of the country, this definition uh, with an element of the imaginative in it of, of that raison d'etre was created basically by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence and by Thomas Paine and others in the propaganda surrounding the revolution. Uh, and, and it took, it electrified the world. It gained for the United States the attention of the world, which it has held ever since then. And I hold that the the genius of the spectacle, which is which is very much part of America, and you, you, I mean, I personally don't much care for Hollywood, and I think ninety percent of films are rubbish. And I never, I mean, I've met all kinds of famous actors, and I didn't know who who on earth they were when I met them. You know, I, I mean, I'm I'm no cinema goer, particularly as it turns out, I've seen most of the more famous traditional movies, including Citizen Kane. But 
but it, it, it was an amazing and remains an amazing industry that the Americans built up in, in Southern California that has swept the world, the, the motion picture industry. And, and even something like the Super Bowl. I mean, it's just a football game. We all have games like that, you know. I mean, we have good sporting matches in this country, and they certainly do in Britain, but not that are promoted like that where the whole world watches it. And, and, and you get these dramatic military expressions like the red zone and things. I mean, it's, it's genius, but it is hype, you know. And, and that's an aspect of the U.S. that has made it even more important than it would otherwise be just by virtue of its size and, and, its, and its productivity. Uh, you know, it's a workforce of 160 million people that, uh, that has a productivity without any precedent in the history of the world. And, and while I'm at it, the rise of the United States from, I believe, two and a half million people, uh, citizens, and six or 700,000 slaves, I think, at the time of the Battle of Yorktown, to, I mean, two long lifetimes, people living to be 80 or 81, to 1945, the end of World War II, the United States had half the economic product of the world. Now, admittedly, that's because most of the other advanced countries have been smashed to rubble in the war. But, but still, 50% of the production of the world, a monopoly of atomic weapons, and the United States set up something that the high hopes were held for it at the time that haven't been realized, but the United Nations. And, and the quality of American leadership, I mean, whatever one thinks of them as individuals, to have Roosevelt and Truman as the presidents and, and the military leaders, uh, you know, Marshall as the coordinator and the theater commanders, uh, Eisenhower and MacArthur and Nimitz. Uh, you, been, I've never heard a negative word about Nimitz, but the others are all controversial people. But, but no one can deny that they were extraordinarily competent and, and no country could ask a higher quality of leadership. For the United States to make that leap in that time, from, from what it was in, in 1776 to what it was in 1945, nothing remotely like that has ever happened in the history of the world. So all of that is there. And, and, but, you know, it, it was when Roosevelt came in 12 years before, the whole American experiment was in some danger. He had a 30% unemployment rate and there was no direct relief for them. The financial system had collapsed. All the commodity and stock exchanges were closed. All the banks were closed except in two states where withdrawals were not allowed to exceed $10. And, and, and there were machine gun nests at the corners of the great federal buildings in Washington for the first time since the Civil War on Inauguration Day. This is what Roosevelt had. And, uh, you know, when, when he died, uh, the country was everywhere victorious and no unemployed and, and was uniquely admired in the world. And partly for itself, obviously, mainly for itself, but partly for him. Well, now let's compare 1945 to today. It seems like our elites and their institutions are in crisis. Much of the working class is in free fall uh, <clears throat> with something of a civil war within the left and the right. And certainly it seems be between the left and right is American society now in a realignment. Uh, maybe a realignment. but and, and what you say is true, James, but in, in defense of America, which I'm always eager to rush to if, if I can find a reason to do it. We should remember that everything you said is true, but it, it was also true that, that I remember as a young man, as an undergraduate, when in the brief 
golden window between the when the academic year ended. My father told me maybe I would want to do something gainful for the balance of the summer instead of sitting in his house drinking his beer. Uh, a few friends of mine and I would drive down into the United States from from here, from Toronto, go down as far as Washington, state of Virginia, northern Virginia, and out as far as uh, Chicago and a little south of there. The segregation, this is in the, in the early 60s, the segregation was everywhere, even in the north. He was stopping a, at a, a roadside, uh, you know, filling station uh, in upstate New York or Pennsylvania, and the, the, the different washrooms for whites and blacks identified. I mean, we, we couldn't believe our eyes. And, and you'd go through these all of the great cities in that area. And and they those ghettos aren't like the predominantly African American areas now. It, it, you, you'd go through block after block of crumbling brownstones with huge numbers of absolutely idle people standing, leaning on lampposts, or sitting on the steps of the houses, staring with hostility as cars went by, and nobody said anything about it. It, it just wasn't there. When you know that one million African Americans served in the armed forces in World War II, and and it was all Roosevelt could do to to get a, a you know the famous air group of three thirty third or something like that I think they were uh, in in Italy and and uh, you know get get the men into more serious roles they were deployed on in the navy for example in the laundry and in the kitchen and so on but not. You know, manning the guns or anything like that, and uh, you know, and, and he he wanted to do it, but he was very mindful of the absolute necessity of keeping his Southern white supporters in Congress in place because they were the ones who approved of his massive rearmament program in the three years before America was in the war, and and they were his strongest backers as a war leader, and and it, it was it, he was going to get to civil rights, but he couldn't get there. And then he died. Now, Mr. Truman really got the ball rolling and he integrated the armed forces. I mean, the United States had segregated armed forces in World War II. And, and uh, Roosevelt started giving, and, and as you know, I'm very pro-Roosevelt, but he started giving advice to Mr. Churchill about how he should just take the Constitution of the United States and, and give it to India. And um, Churchill didn't, because of uh, the correlation of uh, forces between the two countries and the necessity of the alliance between the two countries didn't say this to Roosevelt, but he said to his entourage, uh, I'll consider it when the Americans stop lynching black people. And that was a fairly reasonable comment. And so my point is, you're absolutely right that, that America appears to have declined in comparative influence and its prestige since 45. But it has been, I think, and it obviously at the moment isn't even giving itself much credit for it, made the, the greatest achievement of any country in history in completely emancipating. I'm not saying it's been completed, but, it, but aiming at complete emancipation and substantially achieving it of a racially defined, previously subjugated minority within itself. I mean, in general, most serious countries have done their best with minorities, and some of them have made a lot of progress. But what the United States has achieved in that is very great. It just doesn't seem it right now, in part because, going back to your earlier question, the extreme elements of the African-American community, uh, in, instead of sort of resting on their laurels and saying, we've done what Dr. King suggested, we've had a Black president, we've had a Black vice president. Now we have had a, 
two black secretaries of state, African-American ones, or Caribbean-American in one case. And, and you know, we've done it. Hallelujah. This is the promised land, you know. And, and uh, instead of that, you've got this element demanding more, demanding reparations, threatening to burn down America if they don't get what they want, smashing up stores and peaceful protests doing $2 billion of damage, tearing down statues of great men like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant. So uh, it, it, it's a time of, um, it's an unusual time of fermentation, but don't throw in the towel. The fact is the U.S. is still progressing in my opinion. Very well put. Sorry yeah, to be well so put. loquacious, but you did pose to me a very complicated question. Yeah, very well put. Well, I have to say you are perhaps one of the last great press barons, the spiritual heir to William Randolph Hearst and Colonel McCormick. You were into newspapers even before you were out of law school. What attracted you to print? And is American journalism in decline? Ah, uh, well, in the first case, I, I have a confession to make. What first attracted me was watching on television a tour of San Simeon. This was shortly after Mr. Hearst died. He died, I believe, in 1953. And um, the fact that he lived like this was, if I may say it, rather impressive. Now, you know, I was only eight years old, but that a man would live like that and, and that the source of his income was the newspaper business impressed me. But as time went by, the, some of the foibles of the press owners were interesting. Colonel McCormick was an awful man in, in some ways, but he was a genius publisher. And I, I, I read a book about him uh, in the 50s, right, right after he died. He died in 1955. And he took over the Chicago Tribune, which his family had owned. It was an unprofitable paper and not at all a market leader in Chicago in 1910. And he held the position of publisher until he died in 1955. And from 1914 to 1955, the Chicago Tribune led all newspapers in the world in advertising revenue. If, if, if a fairly impressive record. And um, the flamboyance of these people. I mean, McCormick was outrageous in some ways, but you know, he was a pioneer in radio and television, and his stations were all called WGN for World's Greatest Newspaper. And he, he this uh, tremendous, uh, this mad egotism, but with a sort of creative brilliance. And and the British proprietors too, Lord Northcliffe and my countryman Lord Beaverbrook, and even in a way Lord Thompson, whom I knew, Roy Thompson. Uh, uh, you know, the BBC said to him, uh, why do you want more newspapers, Lord Thompson, after he bought the Times of London? He said, to make more money. Well, why do you want more money? He said, to buy more newspapers. <laughs> it, it fitted the British caricature of the North American businessman. But uh, that occupation had a certain flamboyance. And it is because it is, after all, the news you're dealing with. It is intrinsically interesting. And when I got into it, it was a good business. You had a 20% margin. You know, to 20% of what your income was went straight to profit. And very few businesses are that profitable. So to me, it was a good business as a business. And it was an interesting business as an occupation. And it, it, it and I certainly didn't aspire to the kind of oriental opulence that that uh, Hearst lived in or, or the kind of you know the foibles of all of the people I just mentioned I mean Northcliffe was essentially mad when he died 
but it gave you the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to sort of steer your own course as a, as a member of society and not necessarily conform to, uh, to patterns established by others. So well, it, I, it, it, I don't look at it, it had every uh, advantage as an occupation. My, my problem was that once I really got up to the state you described of owning a lot of newspapers, it ceased to be a growth industry. So then I had to execute a, I mean, you know, you, you, unfortunately you have to uh, pay attention to the commercial side of things. I was not prepared to, you know, go, go down the tubes with that industry. So I had to, I had to liquidate. I I will say I rather enjoy more now my status where I have millions of readers and I don't have to do anything except write it down and send it out, you know, or in some cases go on a podcast or on Mm -hmm. TV or all the problems of administration of dealing with the press unions and uh, journalists are terribly difficult as a group as, as you would know and 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 you like chefs or artists the more talented they are the more difficult they tend to be well and in your case the uh, american justice department uh, got involved for over three years you were a guest of the euro u.s bureau of prisons you were convicted of white collar offenses for which you have since received a presidential pardon is I, the american those charges prior to the pardon. So is the American justice system in decline? What can you tell us about the justice system from the inside? It is an evil system. It is a cancer in that country. You have a conviction rate in federal cases of 97 or 8 percent, approximately 95 percent of those without trial, because you have no chance in, 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 a, in a federal criminal trial in the U.S., uh, the comparable figures are uh, 61% in, in Canada and about 50% in Britain, not because the prosecutors are incompetent in those countries, but because it, it's a more even playing field. In the U.S., the way the plea bargain system works, when when the U.S. attorney goes after you, they, they interview the eight or so people closest to you in whatever activity is objected to. And they say, look here, you know that Mr. Pinero stole money and you would have some evidence useful to us of that fact. And we want that evidence. Oh, well, your friends would say rubbish. I've known James Pinero for decades. He's a perfectly honest man. I don't believe a word of it. You've got the wrong man. And then they say, well, that's all very nice, Mr. Smith, but you'd better jog your memory or there's conspiracy to obstruct justice going on here. And you're part of it and you're going to be indicted with them. Now, if, on the other hand, you can consult your memory in a way that produces something useful to the prosecution, uh, you will not be charged with anything and we will give you an absolute immunity against a charge for perjury. And that's what happens. You get people filing in having been intimidated producing extorted or suborned evidence with an absolute guarantee against perjury charges. And, you know, they still like James Pinero, but they, you know, they don't want to be indicted. So they roll over like poodles and, and that's how you get the convictions. And then they give you a, if you just throw in the towel and don't bother them with a the trial uh, that, you know, they knock your sentence down by six months for cooperating. And, and it, it is an evil system. And, uh, you know, 70 years ago, I'm being arbitrary in that number. The U.S. had conviction rates similar to other advanced countries. It had genuine legal reform movements. I don't mean kooks like this present prosecutor, 
Garson, I think his name is in, in Los Angeles, but, you know, sensible, fair-minded people in, in law enforcement. And, and, and its conviction rates were similar to, to other countries. Now it has six to 12 times as many, as I put in the piece that you've mentioned, six to 12 times as many incarcerated people per capita as Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom, which I say are the six most comparable countries. I mean, large, prosperous, sophisticated democracies. And um, uh, like the United States, smaller than the United States, but altogether they'd be bigger than the United States. And and um, uh, and and this shouldn't happen. And there's no need for it. And I, I you know, I I think it all started when the when you got the the nasty riots in prison, you know. Uh, uh, there was one in Rochester. There was one Attica. Uh, Attica. And, uh, Attica was yeah, that, that was a bad one. And and uh, San Quentin also, as I recall. And 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 you had the the Black Panthers and this fear of Milton Blacks, which was which was legitimate in a way, but it was hyped by J. Edgar Hoover and others. And um, and I'm not a Hoover basher, by the way. I think he I think he looks pretty damn good compared to more recent heads of the FBI. But uh, and and the, and you also had, and I, I want to handle this one very carefully. But uh, the the crimes against women developed in a way that in it became politically useful to suggest that there were a great many more potential rapists around in the country than there were, and. And at the same time, you've got all this nonsense and, and the drug side of things of, you know, three strikes and you're out and uh, you know, usurping the rights of judges with mandatory minimum sentences. It, 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 and it wasn't a right left thing. I mean, Nelson Rockefeller and Bobby Kennedy were, were just as severe as, as Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. It was, there was no constituency for, wait a minute here, let, let's not just convict everyone we, we see and throw the key away. Uh, the, 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 no one was saying that. So the result is you, you went right to the end of the spectrum. But the result of that is, and I know from my time there, the post I had when I was there was I was a tutor in the Bureau of Prisons, to its credit, and I'm, I'm not overflowing with compliments to that organization, but they, they have a program where anyone who is not matriculated from high school has to attempt to do that. And they run examinations every month. And the ones that didn't pass the examinations, they would send to me as a tutor. And I rounded up a couple of other people to help me in fields I didn't know anything about. I had a commander, former commander of the torpedo room of a nuclear submarine is my sciences person, the former head of mathematics at a large high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, and a commodities trader as my uh, mathematics person. And I took care of the humanities. And, and we all our lads passed. Because as soon as I said to them, look, we're not part of this rotten system. This isn't just another scam to deceive you. If you want to leave this place, with your foot on the up escalator and outsmart the system and be able to earn a, a respectable, decent living that you can really live off without doing things that lead straight back to a place like this, we can help you. If you don't, that's your business, no problem. Well, with this, when they saw that I wasn't part of the system, you know, they came aboard, they worked hard. And the point I was trying to make is that the, the, the strength and the weakness of America is it's a jungle. You have this tremendous competitiveness. You have very high levels of achievement in almost every field. 
but but the cost you pay for the way you run it is you grind the lives of millions of people to powder and there's no need for it i'm no socialist but there's no need to destroy people like that who make minor mistakes but that's what happens and and now look it's a democracy and you people run your country any way you want but i think you're making a mistake in that area yeah when you're writing on that's been very powerful thank you for for that thank you james i, I I conclude this conversation by saying that our America will be in decline until you are able to visit. Will we get to see you soon? Your city and specifically uh, you people personally, either in your office or perhaps socially with a glass in our hands, will be the very first visit I make. And yes, well, I will sort that out. I mean, it's complete nonsense of the kind that happens with huge bureaucratic organizations thrashing about in ways that they, they don't, no one thinks of where it ramifies, but they're, they're, we'll work it out. Good, good. This is The New Criterion. I'm James Panero. Our guest today has been Conrad Black, the 2021-22 visiting critic of The New Criterion. Look for his lecture, Is America in Irreversible Decline, in the November 2021 issue of the magazine Conrad Black. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, James.